This week on the show, we have the first quarter FreeBSD quarterly status report of 2022 for you, Nginx and OpenBSD 7.1, the persistent memory allocation, which is an interesting article, colorize your BSD shell, CJIT with Gitalite and Nginx tutorial on FreeBSD 13, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 461, Persistent Memory Allocation, recorded on the 15th of June, 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find the online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show or want to remove ads like the one I just read to you, check out our Patreon page on patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome. We are so going into our headlines this week because we have the FreeBSD quarterly status report for the first quarter of 2022 for you. There's a lot of stuff happening and they use these reports to say to the world what people have been working on. And it's a big list. And compiling these uh, reports individually into a big report like this takes a lot of work. So uh, we are kind of happy for the people who are doing it. And if you want to help out this way, uh, reach out to the folks who are doing that. They are in the uh, beginning part of the, le- the letter or the status report. And we are appreciating your help uh, in this way. So what does the table of contents have? Uh, we have team reports from like a higher level. Uh, then we have project reports, kernel architectures, documentation, ports, and third-party projects. Yeah, so it starts off with the FreeBSD Foundation talking about their fundraising efforts and some of their projects uh, to do OS improvement. I think in the first quarter of 2022, they had 372 source commits, 41 port commits, and 16 doc commits, uh, where the FreeBSD Foundation was listed as a sponsor, representing as much as 16% of the total commits to source Uh, Only 0.4% for ports and 5% for docs. Uh, And some of the specific uh, FreeBSD Foundation-sponsored projects have their own individual status reports, including the crypto changes for WireGuard and the Intel wireless driver support. There was also some work on RISC-V, adding support for SV48-bit mode uh, for supporting more memory. adding v3 support to all of the ctf tools Uh, that's the compact type format uh, that's used by things like dtrace and this updates uh, the tooling to use v3 which uh, should solve the problem we had in the past where the ctf binaries couldn't contain more than 32,000 entries and we would keep skirting that limit Uh, also uh, people from the foundation and other developers on freebsd have been working to make freebsd work better on the framework laptop uh, they got audio switching to probably happen between speakers and the headphone jack when you plug the headphones in and when you unplug it. Uh, fix some bugs that was causing the framework laptop to reboot or power off when the touchpad was used incorrectly. Uh, added support for the uh, Tempo Semiconductor's uh, HDA codec, uh, so that's high definition audio. Uh, temporary install or temporarily fixing installed USB enumeration. Uh, Bluetooth and S3 resume problems, uh, and also fixed a 16-second delay during boot while it was trying to probe the TSC frequency uh, and made that work properly instead. Mm-hmm. 
so all good things shaving 16 seconds off the boot is a big win oh yeah on a laptop even better yeah yeah <laughs> and uh the foundation has continued to support the uh, qa process uh and the uh cluster admin and keeping all the infrastructure up and running and then a bunch of work on advocacy and education including uh hosting a workshop at scale and a bunch of other conferences they have a, a list of here that's mm -hmm. always a lot of work and uh yeah and just handling some of the admin stuff for google summer of code and uh yeah various uh conferences and podcasts and and things like that Hmm. paperwork also yeah like especially <laughs> just the the amount of uh organization work that has to go into keeping google summer of code running yeah yeah that also yeah yeah and then obviously the previously release engineering team uh got FreeBSD 13.1 out the door in the first quarter there so that was big bunch of work there uh i was glad to see that a lot of the last minute stuff all managed to get fixed in the final release too so that was great uh, the cluster admin team run down some of the stuff they did to improve web services and increase the performance of a bunch of the website stuff, switching to ECDSA certificates or uh, and having dual flavor certificates on a bunch of the services um, and just generally keeping everything working and uh, getting some of the new ARM64 machines set up and running, including the fact that I think one of our FTP mirrors actually runs off ARM now. Uh, oh, show that that cool. Uh, then there's a whole report on continuing to work with the uh, continuous integration stuff, uh, including new DTrace tests uh, for running with KASAN enabled uh, for finding any problems there. Although you can see there's a, a long list of things that are work in progress and open tasks. So if you want to help out with previous DCI, uh, there's a giant list of things they could use help with. Mm -hmm. uh, the ports collection has its giant update as usual. There are now... 46,800 ports in the ports tree, uh, and there are 2,700 open uh, problem reports, of which 680 have not been assigned to someone. In the last quarter, they saw 9,403 commits to the main branch by 157 different committers, and 683 commits to the Q1 branch by 63 committers. All right, yeah. Uh, then the accessibility project did some work to try to... Uh, improve things, including getting a setting up a mailing list and some wiki pages uh, with more resources and uh, adding a searchable accessibility keyword uh, to Bugzilla to make it easier to find accessibility-related problems and report them. And then Colin Percival has a report here about his boot performance improvements. He's talking a bit about how that happened. Uh, it's quite a bit of work. Started back in 2017 until the, about the end of 2021 and uh, shaved approximately 30 seconds uh, or reduced the time from 30 seconds to 10 seconds uh, to get an Amazon instance up and running. And then in Q1, there were further improvements to shave a bit more time off, and it's now down to about eight seconds uh, from, you know, the second Amazon tries to boot it to you can SSH into it. Mm, that's so noticeable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 30 seconds to eight seconds <laughs> is a big change. Uh, the people at Semihaf got... Uh, did an update to FreeBSD's Elastic Network Adapter. Uh, that's the virtual NIC that Amazon uses. Uh, so that's been updated to a newer version. And then there's a, a really interesting one that I saw come out of uh, Kirk McCusick. He added a new Geom class called GUnion. The GUnion facility is used to track changes to a read-only disk on a writable disk. Logically, a writable disk is placed over top a read-only disk. 
All write requests are intercepted and stored on the writable disk, but any read requests are first checked to see if they've been written on that top layer. Uh, and if they are, then return that. But if they've not, then it returns uh, the copy from the read-only lower disk, kind of like a union FS. Uh, the GUnion facility can be especially useful if you have a large disk with a corrupted file system and you are unsure how to repair it. You can use GUnion to place another empty disk over the corrupted disk and then attempt to repair the file system. If the repair fails, you can just revert those changes on the upper disk and be back to an unchanged state on the lower disk, thus allowing you to try another approach uh, to repair the system. If the repair was successful, you can commit all of those written records uh, on the top disk to the lower disk, and now you have a working file system. Another use of the GUnion facility is to try out upgrades on your system. You place the upper disk over a disk holding your file system that is then upgraded, uh, and you can run on it. And if it works, then you can commit it. If it doesn't, you can revert it and go back. Uh, so this provides something uh, kind of halfway between a UnionFS and a ZFS clone but for any block device. Uh, so that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And it's sponsored by Netflix, so you kind of have an idea of why they would need such a thing. Well, they have a lot of very large disks <laughs> with UFS file systems on them, and when they go bad, they want to repair them. Yeah. Then we have uh, the Wi-Fi update that we talked about. Uh, so Bjorn Zeeb uh, worked on the Realtek wireless driver, and he says, while the Intel wireless driver project is the main driver of all this, uh, he's also been working on the Realtek one as well. While the initial driver porting effort focused on the RTW88 and 89 drivers, most of that happened on his personal time, um, the Linux KPI integration that was done, uh, and especially since it was needed by the Intel driver, uh, was all sponsored by the FreeBSD Foundation. And by working on this other driver as well, you make sure that uh, it's not, the, the support for the Linux KPI is broad, not just specific to the Intel driver. Hmm. Uh, currently, it's in a slightly weird state. The RTW88 driver, uh, will work on machines that have less than four gigabytes of memory, but they don't work properly on machines with more than four gigabytes of memory. Oh. Uh, but he's working on solving the problem there. It seems to be uh, a problem outside the driver, some interaction between the Linux KPI and bus DMA. So don't rip out your RAM chips yet. Uh, and the RTW89 driver has happily started to send uh, packets and uh, but has problems receiving frames at this point and you know still working on it. Like you said, that's mostly on his personal time, but partly sponsored by the FreeBSD Foundation because it has some bits that are common with the second update here, the Intel wireless driver support uh, and Linux KPI uh, for 802.11. So the Intel wireless driver uh, project aims to bring support for the newer chipsets uh, along with the Mac 802.11 uh, Linux KPI compat code. The dual licensed Intel driver code was ported in the past as the IWM native driver. Using the Linux KPI compat framework allows us to use that driver directly and give support for all the latest chipsets with only minor local modifications. Some of the changes made while porting the driver to FreeBSD were kindly incorporated into the upstream Linux driver already. Uh, so even getting stuff back upstream uh, with that driver to keep our diff as minimal as possible. During the first quarter, work continued uh, with about 70 commits, updating the driver and firmware uh, to further reduce the differences to the Linux version and give us any bug fixes and improvements that have been made in Linux in the meantime. Changes to the Linux KPI 802.11 compat layer were made to avoid firmware crashes and possible panics for users along with other improvements. Auto-loading support for Linux KPI PCI drivers has been committed. This means that the IWL Wi-Fi driver 
will load automatically during boot if a supported card is detected without any user having to manually know which driver to load. Uh, considering the current state of the driver and the next release, a uh, decision was made that IWM supported chipsets will continue to attach to IWM rather than IWL for now, and only newer and otherwise unsupported chips will use the less proven driver. Um, but possibly over time, uh, more things will switch over to the IWL driver. Uh, like he says, this is likely going to change in current as soon as the IWL Wi-Fi driver provides better support than what IWM does currently. But we don't want anybody's Wi-Fi that was working to stop working. Mm. So kind the, of important. Yeah, the code was merged to the Stable 13 branch, and the current state will be shipped, uh, or did ship with FreeBSD 13.1. addition to the FreeBSD foundation, thanks to all the users who have been testing and reporting back or patiently waiting for the next release. For all the latest state on the development, uh, check out the FreeBSD-wireless mailing list. Uh, and as we mentioned, John Bowlin has worked on uh, improving the FreeBSD WireGuard driver. On the FreeBSD side, he added support for the X Cha Cha 20 Poly 1305 AEAD cipher, and also added a dedicated API to support those for small flat buffers, uh, since that's what WireGuard is going to use with them. And he also added an API wrapper for the Curve 25519 implementation from Libsodium in the kernel. Uh, for the WireGuard driver itself, he wrote a series of patches which updates the drivers to use the FreeBSD kernel crypto APIs, uh, such as those mentioned uh, earlier, in place of its own internal Cypher implementations, allowing it to take advantage of all the accelerations that the FreeBSD kernel version has. The series also included a fix to avoid scheduling excess crypto tasks, as well as a few other small fixes. Uh, some of the series is still pending review, but uh, the WireGuard driver is, is moving ahead well as well. Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, we also see people working on the NXP DPAA2, uh, which is a new family of SOCs. Um, it's data path acceleration architecture and allows to dynamically configure and wire packet processing objects like DPNI for network interfaces or DPMAC for media access controllers together to form a network on a chip. Uh, also, the Honeycomb LX2 is one of the powerful ARM64 boards from Solid Run, and it is built around that uh, same uh, NXP chip uh, and lacks onboard gigabit support in FreeBSD. These drivers are about uh, to improve that, and that way the built in gigabit will be supported. There's still work in progress, and some rough implementations of the drivers exist, um, but a new network interface, the DPNI, will be added for the Honeycomb for testing as well. <laughs> and the sponsor here is Bear Enthusiasm. Uh, then the documentation team uh, has done a bunch of fixes. Uh, some issues with translation workflows with PO files and the web late and in general just making it that much easier to get the translations done. They also updated the offline documentation so that you can download snapshots of the documentation to have offline. Uh, and they also removed Google Analytics from documentation and the website and uh, added a last modified date in all the documentation so you can tell how fresh some of the documentation is and tagged uh, a branch of the documentation for 13.1 and also started adding the first Indonesian translations into the uh, documentation tree. Mm -hmm. Speaking of translations, uh, using uh, WebLate for translation, um, there are currently 12 languages, one new, and 142 registered users uh, working on simplified and traditional Chinese, uh, Dutch, French, German, Indonesian, Italian, Norwegian, Persian, Portuguese, Spanish, and Turkish translations of all the FreeBSD documentation. They also stood up a uh, web apps working group to work on revamping the FreeBSD website. Uh, so designing, uh, redesigning the documentation portal, which you probably have seen, uh, the docs look a lot nicer now. 
they're currently working on redesigning the man pages uh, part of the website uh, using scripts to generate the HTML pages using mandoc. And then they'll be looking at redesign of the port pages of the website and then eventually actually redesigning the main front page of the website. And it says here dark theme, so look out for that. <laughs> uh, then in Portland, lots of work on KDE, um, the Office Suites, uh, GCC, and a bunch of things like that. Also, um, Alfonso's got port config. Um, if you've ever built something from ports, you probably notice it goes in, uh, it builds a package uh, that allows you to have that config dialog uh, to configure a port. And this basically is looking at replacing that one that uses the GPL lib dialog with the, the new uh, one in base that's not GPL licensed. Yeah, and I think he developed that himself, Yes, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. And he's been working with BAPT on that. And uh, this will replace the ports config dialog uh, the same way. I think the installer in 13.1, I think, even is uh, replaced similarly. Or it's the installer to. in 14 is going to be anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, then uh, something we mentioned the other week, uh, Wi-Fi box. If you do happen to have a Wi-Fi chipset on FreeBSD that's not supported by the new Intel drivers that are in progress, or uh, Realtek drivers, you might want to check out Wi-Fi box. So you basically package install Wi-Fi box, and it builds a tiny... Um, Alpine Linux install that has the Linux Wi-Fi drivers and you it will configure basically hardware pass-through to take your Wi-Fi chip and give it to the Beehive and the Beehive will give you back a tap interface that your computer can use to get high-speed Wi-Fi. Uh, so if your Wi-Fi doesn't work at all or if it's too slow on FreeBSD, you can install Wi-Fi box to basically uh, run a tiny... Uh, VM and get high-speed Wi-Fi on FreeBSD until mm -hmm. the drivers manage to catch up to you. Then uh, finally, we have third-party projects. So Hello Systems uh, is attempting to make a really nice, elegant desktop. Uh, and so they have updates on their 0.8.0 release, which is based on FreeBSD 13.1. Uh, and then containers in FreeBSD, the uh, POT, POTLUCK, and POTMAN um, tools have had a series of updates. Uh, and then there's another tool uh, here called fpart and fpsync, which uh, basically allows you to use FreeBSD's FTS implementation for walking the file system uh, very quickly and be able to break uh, large directories up into smaller bits, uh, for example, to parallelize a bunch of rsync or CPIO jobs. Mm -hmm. Cool. So yeah, a uh, lot going on in FreeBSD uh, in the first quarter of the year and even more going to be happening uh, this quarter, I think. So. Oh yeah, so... Definitely check these out. And uh, if you have a story of your own to contribute to that, they are looking for the second quarter of 2022 already. Next up in our headlines here is installing Nginx on OpenBSD 7.1. That's a tutorial by Pratik Devkota. Hopefully that's proper pronunciation here. It's unixcop.com. And uh, I guess we can skip the introduction to Nginx. It's a high-performance web server uh, with low resource usage. Uh, here he documents... Uh, the process of compiling and installing Nginx through the source code or via source uh, while installing through the package manager is fairly easy. Uh, we do not get as much control there, right, over the Nginx binary as we get by compiling from source. And they've chosen OpenBSD for it serves very well as a secure web server operating system. And so Nginx is two websites, nginx.org and nginx.com. The .org is where we look most of the time for documentation 
uh, with nginx.com. We're uh, being commercial nginx as a product site, so that's a good thing to understand between the two sites. Uh, so first, to download nginx, we'll head over to the download site and fetch the latest mainline version. That's nginx.org uh, here. And uh, they do this with a simple fetch or wget or whatever you have. And FTP so, is the default command on OpenBSD. Oh, oh, right, yeah. Yeah, okay. their FTP client can also do HTTP. Classic. <laughs> okay, then you extract that tarball with an uh, unzipped or untar xzf. And then you have the files in your directory. Now to the compile. We need to run the configure script. This is where the control we get from building from source really shines. The configure options are well documented on the website. Uh, for now, they're going with the following command line options. I'm not going to read them all here. Yeah, basically they're enabling threads, uh, SSL, HTTP uh, 2 gzip and ungzip, uh, some of the auth modes, uh, secure link, which can be useful at times, the status page, and turning off all of the mail features. Yeah. And enabling the uh, just-in-time compiler for the Perl-compatible regular expression. Yep, and that would be a very long line to type. So I assume that OpenBSD's ports has something like the make config thing where you can select. Yeah, it would be very options. tedious to type this uh, just to get the options. Well, this is mostly copy and paste from the documentation of, yeah. you know, enable the things you want and with dash the thing you want and dash dash without dash with the things you don't want. It's pretty standard. I used to build all of my stuff this way back in the previous oh, sure. days. That was the only way how to make it properly work. Well, no, there are <laughs> ports still existed in FreeBSD 4, but uh, I didn't really understand it and I knew how to do it this other way. <laughs> yeah, it's very basic. And uh, so I say you. I've not done it this way in at least yeah. a bit. <laughs> So that's how the times are changing. Okay, so finally, uh, they go ahead and compile the source with make install as root after running the configure strict, of course. And then we have, and hopefully if the compile all runs fine, the compilation finished. And then you have a basic configuration of Nginx, which has its own set of terminologies, which are used in various files they write. If you're unfamiliar with them, then they link a guide that helps you. For now, they'll proceed with the basic configuration. Note that the events context should exist even if it's empty. So they create a www directory where they store the HTML files and then copy an example or a default file to wait. Doesn't that shouldn't that be the other way around? They copy the nginx.conf to an nginx.conf.default. Uh well yes, when you, uh, the default one is normally installed by the package. Oh, I see. Uh but they're just saving a copy of the default. Yeah, to be uh, able to go back. I think nginx does that when calls it nginx.conf-dist or something like that. Um, but I don't recall. I've not built Nginx from plain source. In a while. <laughs> no, I did it once in the year 2005. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's uh, 15 years ago. Okay, even more. That was that was <laughs> for uh, a, a Unix security class, and I had to build Nginx from <laughs> on NetBSD. <laughs> and you can imagine what the students then had to do. Um... <laughs> no, I was a student okay. at that time. <laughs> Uh, anyway, we they create a little nginx.conf to serve basically uh, on port 80, the openbsd.local, uh, that's the server name, and a standard HTML directory giving you some website to show. Uh, then we can check the configuration syntax with nginx-t, 
Now that we're done with that configuration bit, we can start Nginx. For now, they'll just use the same binary with no flags, uh, just like Nginx for starting the daemon. Yes, it's no service running yet, but well, it's just a quick test. This shows that our Nginx installation is working by browsing to that website or to the name you gave it to with your browser. We'll eventually have to use the RC scripts for managing the daemon. Yes, that otherwise it's very uh, tedious. I also in intend to cover some advanced topics, hopefully in later articles. Nevertheless, that's it for this article and thank you for reading. Time for the news roundup in this episode. Uh, we should cover the live webinar one more time, let people know about it. Yes. So yes, remember to uh, follow the link in the show notes and sign up for Clara's webinar on uh, getting started using Beehive. Uh, so this walks through using uh, one of the popular managers and getting uh, from I've never even heard of Beehive before to I'm running Windows, Linux, and FreeBSD and Beehive on my machine in uh, no time at all. And we'll also talk about some of the uh, newer changes and, for example, why you might want to have most of your disks backed by Beehive's new NVMe driver rather than the uh, Vertio block or AHCI drivers that have been how you've always done it in the past. So even if you're not new to Beehive, uh, we have some uh, updated advice about how to decide which device models to use. Okay. Yep. That'll be live July 12th. Uh, so follow the link and sign up. Yep. Be there live and ask questions. Use that uh, access that you can get this way. Next up, we found an interesting article on the ACMQ magazine called Persistent Memory Allocation. Yeah, so this is uh, pretty interesting. They talk. They basically have an example here of a little awk script that goes over a log file and analyzes the frequency of certain lines in the log file. Uh, so you know, your basic awk script that says, you know, if we've not seen it already, then add this unique string to uh, our list of unique strings and count how many times that's happened. Um, and then we do a frequency analysis to know you know, how many times each string has been seen in the log file. And at the end, it prints out that list um, and gives you the frequency analysis of, you know, this line's appeared 100 times, and this line is unique, and, and so on. Um, but then it raises the question, what if you want to compare your results to yesterday and the day before? You don't want to reprocess every line of every log file every day, uh, you know, because eventually that'll just get to take more and more time. Um, so they have this persistence facility uh, they want to add to popular scripting languages that will actually allow the, the simply in the script to declare that you want this variable to persist between invocations of awk in their example here. You know, they say, why can't a script simply remember programmer-defined variables from one execution to the next? Uh, persistent scripting provides the right interface for scripts to remember variables across executions. A new command line option informs the interpreter that script-defined variables reside in a persistent heap. Uh, when a script runs with the new interpreter flag, the script begins execution uh, pre-populating with variables from the persistent heap from previous runs. When the script terminates, the persistent heap retains the state of those variables for its next execution. Scripts remain oblivious to this persistence it all happens in the scripting engine, so you don't really need to rewrite the scripts to do this even. So all your existing scripts obtain the benefits of persistence without having to be rewritten. Persistent heaps are separate from scripts 
and may be shared freely uh, among unrelated scripts. That's exactly what is needed for scripts uh, like shown in that awk example I had earlier. Despite its attractions, persistent scripting would be impractical if it were too difficult to implement or couldn't be widely deployed. Does the new command line option require extensive modifications to the interpreter? Uh, do these persistent heaps require, you know, rare, unconventional, non-volatile memory? Uh, fortunately, no. Uh, the persistent memory allocator with the right interface makes it remarkably easy to retrofit existing scripts into this widely used feature-rich production-grade interpreter. Furthermore, such an allocator need only rely or doesn't need to rely on any exotic hardware. So they have implemented a persistent scripting uh, mode in GNU's awk interpreter, GAWK. Our persistent memory GAWK, or PM-GAWK, uh, affects roughly 70 lines of source code out of the 91,000 lines of code that are GNU awk. Uh, a companion paper on this persistent memory GNU awk uh, presents performance evaluations of both conventional hardware and Optane NVMe and details the benefits of this persistent scripting. Uh, we're also working with the GAWK maintainer to implement that version in the official distribution. Uh, this column describes how all of that works. So if you're interested in how you could uh, easily expand different scripting languages to be able to remember variables across invocations, uh, that could be really interesting. Oh yeah, uh, I can see a couple good uses for that, yeah. Yeah, like, even like that uh, awk script they mentioned is, I do things like that all the time and it might actually be interesting to keep the data from yesterday when I, you know, especially if you think of like something like a crime tab, where if you could just remember what it ran last time, that could have huge advantages. Mm. Uh, like I have even like my monitoring system has some scripts where it literally has to write the number down in a little file and flash uh, TMP yeah. <laughs> so that every five minutes when it runs, it knows, all right, what was the value five minutes ago compared to what the value is right now? And there's my Delta. It's like, if it could just remember that instead, that'd be better. And, you know, my first thought when reading this was like, well, in PHP, you have the serialize function where you could take a, an array or a bunch of variables and turn it into a string that you could store in a file or a database or whatever. But that's not really what they're looking for here. Uh, and yeah, this seems uh, really interesting. So if it's interesting to you, uh, check it yep. out. And if you are like, well, if you've been living in the dark world of the shell too much, then this article may be interesting from the FreeBSD forums. Colorize your BSD shell. Uh, it's in the how to's and FAQ section that has a couple of good articles in there and well formatted and uh, well put up for people to get into. And so they describe first why you want to have that and what kind of shells you can uh, add this to. Uh, so environment uh, values can be added to your shell configuration files. These are uh, for various shells different. Uh, set can be used to see basic variables from born shells and CSH. For CSH, set env can be used to see its additional variables. And export is used from SH, KSH variants and ZSH or the Z shell. The commands are typed without arguments to view the variables, which can be adjusted. Uh, and so they talk a little bit about how to get this from the environment. So now changing colors of the LS output. Be careful with that. That's my little uh, uh, warning at the beginning. Don't over colorize yourself uh, too much. First, you get problems identifying stuff and it also slows down things a little bit. Yeah. Uh, also, it can be if you use a lot of different machines or a lot of other people's machines, uh, if you get too fancy on your own machine, you'll miss it when you're on yeah. other machines. Oh, I want this to be red and not green or 
yeah, whatever. So there's LS colors, and that is uh, in the man page also describing what colors you can set and uh, how these are representing. Like you can say, show me directories in green, show me the uh, executables in blue or whatever bike shed color you want to have. Uh, this is up to you. And so you create these little uh, environment uh, scripts or little environment strings, set this to LS colors, and that uh, will then colorize your LS output. Yeah, and they show an example here of changing your prompt to have the username in yellow and then the path in like teal mm -hmm. uh, and then the commands in gray and things like that. Lots of different options. Yeah, so then you can play for hours with different colors and just be never satisfied with the set you have. Uh, but other people in the thread also replied with a couple of things like colorizing the man pages and uh, warnings and other uh, threads where people share their ZHLRC files and other uh, shell configuration files. Yeah, uh, I think I used the oh my ZSH mm. thing to do uh, a pretty That's fancy pretty prompt on my machine. Although I did uh, turn off some of the Git integrations because like the FreeBSD and even the OpenZFS repos can get pretty big uh, compared to a small Git repo. And like my my ZFS repo has the FreeBSD source code in it as well for mostly from the past when dealing with um, the transition from ZFS being built into ZFS being uh, open ZFS um, and being able to diff between those and, and copy patches back and forth. And so that's the entire history of ZFS for years and years, plus the entire history of FreeBSD uh, possibly twice because of the git hash change thing um and then i have like dozens of work trees and so sometimes it trying to run git status takes a little longer than yeah. you would hope. <laughs> uh and it's like i don't want you to do that every time i start the new command to tell me if i'm in a dirty <laughs> checkout it's like i'll i'll have to live with yeah. that <laughs> so yeah I, I i do recommend not turning on too many fancy things in the shell because i find it slows me down but uh some basic colors and stuff can really yeah, and auto completions and stuff. All right, that's that. Yeah, I think the biggest feature I miss from CSH when going to something else or TCSH is, um, you know, when you have up arrow for your history. Yeah. But I want to type like ZFS space up arrow and go through the last ZFS command I did mm. in my history, which might be 30 commands ago. So I don't have to press up 30 times or hold it down for 30 iterations. I can do ZFS up and then it will, you know, auto, it'll search my history for the last command I did that started with ZFS. Yeah, yeah there's also, uh, that there's also a, a couple of extensions that uh, give you history, but only for that particular command that you run in this particular uh, directory you're in. So that's very... Uh, what I, I need to figure out in ZSH, I, it's not that I haven't, I haven't tried, so I, I'm not saying that it's difficult, but um, when I'm on the same machine, I'm SSH into the same machine four times, I kind of want the, the history to be separate on those four instances. Yeah, not all. But at the same time, I don't always. Um, <laughs> like, I I like the fact that ZSH has all of the history for me instead of only the hist. Like, uh, with TCSH, if I open four of them, only one of them ends up getting saved or whatever. Uh, and it doesn't work as nice. But with ZSH, uh, it does better at that. But if if I have two windows open and the one's been idle for a while, uh, and I want to run the command I just most I ran most recently hmm. on that one. I press up, and it's the last hundred commands I did in a different window. And I'm like, that's not yeah. what I wanted. But 
I also don't want you to not do that, so I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, it's a hard life. <laughs> um, maybe this next piece will be interesting to you as well, working with Git and colleagues. Uh, how to install Seedjit with Gitolite and Nginx on FreeBSD 13. Yeah, um, Seedjit is what FreeBSD uses for its official repo, so. Oh, yeah. That's... Uh, I'm a bit familiar mm -hmm. with it. <laughs> so this is a tutorial on herrbischoff.com. That's very uh, German here. Uh, so they recently dove into creating a very simple Git server setup, gradually moving away from the big Git providers. Uh, first, they used Git for some time, but unsurprisingly realized that they liked editing text files in the terminal a lot more than clicking around websites. So they did embark on the mission of setting up a robust but simple Git server solution. Uh, first of all, they install a couple packages. CFGGI wrap, git gitolite, nginx, py38. These are probably uh, dependencies. Yeah, docutils, markdown, uh, pigments, and then Python 3 itself. Mm -hmm. Then enable the services in rc.conf. Uh, enabling sshd, well, that should already have been. Uh, nginx uh, is enabled in fcgi wrapper and uh, setting ownership to the www user. Then yeah, making a git user and uh, git user home directory and chownet, setting up the SSH keys, uh, do the gitolite setup, uh, and then configuring the default branch name, the umask, and then you can start making git repos. Mm -hmm. And share that with uh, colleagues or the whole company even, or with your friends at home. Yeah, and I even show here how to control who can write to each repository. Yeah, important things to set. <laughs> uh, including like, uh, what I like to do is similar to what they have here. Certain people can write to the whole repo, but certain people like, you know, the, the main or master branch, nobody else should be able to write to that one maybe. Uh, and that everything has to be done via pull request or something, or, uh, you know, people can do whatever they want in branches, but no force pushing on main ever yeah. and things like that. <laughs> Sensible defaults. And that tutorial is ready available with all the commands you need to set up the, th the same uh, as we have here. Yep. And then they show using Seagit to provide a web interface to let people browse around the source code and do stuff as well. Mm -hmm. Very cool. And we've kind of uh, missed the announcement, but we have, are fixing that now. EuroBSDCon 2022 in Austria has been uh, announcing its program and registration is open. Yeah. Uh, so they have... Uh, all the tutorials, you can learn about how uh, the IO subsystem on FreeBSD works, how to do network management with uh, PF on OpenBSD, uh, or how to manage Unix systems using Ansible. Uh, they also have uh, tutorials on file systems and networking and uh, do-it-yourself jails. Oh, yeah. And then the main track, I think, has something like almost 40 talks. Uh, basically three tracks for both days, uh, for five time slots each. Yeah. Uh, plus a couple of keynotes. So I think there's 42 talk sessions in all, uh, plus those five different tutorials. Uh, so there's stuff from every one of the BSDs, uh, from people I know and people I don't. Uh, so it's got everything. Uh, and, uh, the social event is always great at EuroBSD. Mm -hmm. So I look forward to seeing everyone. Yeah. There. Check out the whole website and don't forget to register while they have the uh, early bird registration still going until the 31st of July, that is. 
but register soon yeah yeah make sure and that it also helps the organizers plan a little bit like how many people to expect all right it's feedback and questions time this week we get feedback and questions and we are answering them here when you want to send us a question send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv and the first one that we covered today is brad and brad writes hey guys this will probably or hopefully be a pretty easy one for FreeBSD old hats. Uh, a couple of years ago, I upgraded two of the drives of my desktop system from one terabyte drives to three terabyte drives. So my system has two one terabyte Western Digital Blue SSDs in a mirrored pair and two three terabyte spinning Rust drives, a Hitachi and a Toshiba one. Also in a mirrored pair, that's ZFS. Uh, well, somewhere along the line, my zeal to get them configured and the system back up, I apparently failed to partition them. I noticed this because I made my system dual boot and one time when booting back into FreeBSD, I saw the following message. Uh, yeah, primary GPT table corruptor invalid, uh, using the secondary instead, recovery strongly advised and so on. So my questions are, first, is it possible to properly partition these two drives, preferably without killing the contents of the drive? And second, how? So it depends. Um... The first thing you want to confirm is looking at like zpool status or something, uh, confirming that you are actually using them unpartitioned. Um, the way it sounds here is those disks were partitioned and they had partition tables and GPT stores one copy at the beginning and one at the end of the disk. But it does sound like you possibly uh, used the whole disk in ZFS without using the partition. And so ZFS overwrote the beginning of the disk and clobbered that uh, initial GPT table. Uh, but FreeBSD is saying, well, I can find the second copy and I can use that, but if you're opening the whole disk, then uh, it's probably not the partition table you want anyway. So uh, if you confirm with zpool status or maybe glabel status, if you have to turn the name back into the, the actual disk name, that your uh, mirrors are actually created out of the raw device, um, then best bet there is zpool offline one of those two disks um and repartition it correctly the way you want um and then use uh zpool replace to replace uh the offline disk with the correct partition of the disk which you know will be a tiny bit smaller as long as it's not too much smaller zfs will deal with it um the way zfs works is it uh, chops your disk up into approximately 200 meta slabs all of the same size so that means there's a rounding error at the end where there's a bunch of space that doesn't get used. That's usually, you know, less than 16 gigabytes or something. It depends on the size of the drive. Um, so as long as your new uh, partitioned disk is not too much smaller than that, uh, and it works out to the same number of meta slabs, then it will accept that. And then it'll do a resilver and rewrite uh, the data. It probably will want to rewrite everything because you're starting at an offset now. And so everything's going to be actually in slightly the wrong place. Uh, but it would mean you could go through and it would re-mirror the drive um, and rewrite it and your pool will be usable the whole time. And then once that's completed, you can do the same procedure with the other disk and then get both of them switched over to the partition versions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, but you might also decide to just delete the partition at the uh, table at the end of the drive to avoid that error and just use the drives unpartitioned. That's also fine. Yeah. Um, you only really care about partitioning the ZFS drive if you're trying to boot from that particular drive. And it sounds like 
you know, if it's not partitioned, then you're definitely not booting um, from those those mirrored three terabyte drives. Mm -hmm. In which case, you don't need to partition them. Yeah, you can save that. Uh... Whatever works better for you. But yes, you can fix it usually. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, with those instructions. And uh, thank you for the feedback. Uh, next up is Carl with a wiring question. So Carl writes, Dear Alan, Benedict, JT, and Tom, in a recent episode, I heard you mentioning that you need more questions. Yes, always good. Finally, I have one which is fantastic since I might hear you answer it in the best technical podcast I've even listened. Oh, nice of you. Thank you for your amazing work. That's appreciated. Uh, the question here. I'm wiring a new house. Every room will have one or more Ethernet sockets, all CAT6, all connected into a patch panel in the garage. I have absolutely no interest in more than one gigabits per second. Well, you're saying that now, but I do want to have rock solid one gigabits per second. Okay. Do I test and verify that the, well, how do I test and verify that the new sockets, patch panels and switches can do one gigabits per second? I'm not professional and I don't have advanced Ethernet testers like the Fluke network uh, boy. And I'm definitely not going to buy it since I need to test approximately 50 Ethernet ports and then I'm done with it. I do own a simple tester that I can reveal or that can reveal shorts and disconnected wires, but that's not enough. I want to use what I have available, which in my case are two Intel NUX Gen 10. Based in my understanding, NUX can easily run one gigabits per second full duplex, which for example, Raspberry Pis cannot, and therefore they should be great little testers. The question is, what software under BSD or Linux should I use? I want? Uh, the answer there is probably iPerf3. Uh, it's specifically designed for doing this. Um, you might want to use the flag capital P2 uh, to make sure you use more than one connection to make sure that it, you don't end up CPU bottlenecked. But yeah, it should be really easy to uh, use either one of these NUCs plugged in somewhere and then a laptop that you can walk around and plug into all 50 different ports and then just do iperf. Um, and I think if you do dash R, there's a, the man page for iperf will explain it, but you can do both testing in both directions and uh, easily just run the command and say, here's the IP of the NUC uh, from either the other NUC or a laptop and, uh, you know, test the network capacity of each port and you shouldn't really see a difference uh, on any of your ports. Um, you can use the dash T flag to specify the time. I'd suggest going with like 30 seconds instead of 10 seconds, which is the default, uh, just to let it average out a bit more and make sure that, you know, you don't think there's something wrong with this one port because it's a bit slower just because it happened to run, you know, the 10 second test didn't quite grow the buffer the same or whatever. But over a 30 second test, you should see about the same from every port. Yeah, and it should be easy to do. Uh, it will, iPerf will even tell you the number of times it had to retransmit a packet. Although a retransmitted packet can be for reasons other than an actual problem. It might just be that, you know, the... Uh, if you try to send too fast, if you're at the maximum speed that the network can take, sometimes a packet gets dropped or whatever. Yep. Okay, that pretty much answers that. Uh, good luck with the wiring. And then last but not least is Carl with a wire... No, Carl we just had. Uh, John actually has a jails question. John's is a bit shorter, but nevertheless important. John writes, hi guys, quick questions. Under Linux and something like Podman... There is a process called conmon that monitors the container if it's running. Do jails have anything like that? I want to run jails at scale without too many add-ons. Uh, pot and potman come to mind, or pot pot. Yeah, um, it depends. Like, what about the jail you're trying to monitor? Like, uh, 
with just JLS, it'll list what jails are running. And if you want to detect when one stops running, like in general, a jail is not going to stop unless you stop it. <laughs> um, so it depends what about it you want to know. Yeah, you can run stuff from a mon from the outside into the jail or run the monitoring software in the jail that sends the info out. But you probably want to have something on the system level, nothing uh, extra. Yeah, Pod and Podman would be my choices to look at. That's uh, Luca Pizzamiglio's project and some others are helping. Yeah, and then he asks a second part here. Mm -hmm. uh, also, Linux containers have repositories of container configurations like the Docker Hub. Is there anything equivalent in FreeBSD or for jails? Having some sort of jail recipe repository would be useful. I think uh, Bastille BSD has some of these. Um, most of the ones on FreeBSD are more a template uh, which allows you to recreate a jail in a certain way, uh, rather than a binary image of an already built one. But that's mostly just because on FreeBSD, it's much easier to recreate the same thing from a recipe rather than having to download an already built thing because you would never be able to build it the same, exactly the same yeah. again. Um, and so it's just a lot less to download that way. Uh, it's just like, here, install this list of packages and you'll have basically the same thing. Um, but yeah, some of the different jail managers like uh, Bastille BSD uh, have templates and and you know pre-built configurations like that. Mm -hmm. Yep, that should get you going. And uh, speaking of going, we should be going because this episode is getting too long. Uh, thank you for all your questions. Uh, we look forward to next week's episode with another fresh content of BSD as always. And till then, have a good time. See you next week.